You are listening to a conservative review production. Trust, but verify. You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review's senior editor, Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. Welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. Thank you for joining us again. This is our second podcast this week. I know many of you enjoyed my rant earlier on, so we'll continue ranting away. But this time I got my colleague Joe Koss back with me for our regularly scheduled podcast. Um, Look, you know, everyone's talking about the elections and everyone's talking about the smut and the dirt being flown back and forth. And, you know, the problem is we don't get to have a mature discussion about what is really ailing our country about the constitutional crisis we're in, the war on religious liberty, some of the big major issues. And and, and that's what I want to discuss today. And and in particular, I want to focus on part of the narrative we've been bringing up in many of these podcasts, Joe and I, um, about the threat of the court to democracy, our new super legislature, how the courts are destroying this country, they're destroying democracy. And, you know, God willing, we're, we're going to try to make this a regular feature. As you all know, the Supreme Court's going to meet um, and, and issue more decisions through the end of June. So the next couple of months will be big. And we're going to try to cover some of this as it assuredly will get overshadowed by some of the tabloid-style news that, that we've seen lately. So, you know, down to serious stuff. Joe, welcome back. You know, it's good, good to be back with you. Uh, sorry you weren't there for my rant. No, I'm. I, I think I'm glad I wasn't. Uh, you were uh, pretty upset there, huh? It is. I mean, this is the stuff we don't get to discuss real substance. And you know, I want to start with. You know, we're going to put in the show notes. I know a lot of our audience has read the article we put out about the raging fire against religious liberty. There are some serious problems. We have fundamental rights being flipped on its head. We have the role of the federal government, the role of the courts, the role of states. Everything is backwards, completely backwards. There was a lot of attention on the courts last uh, session, last couple sessions, when you had Obamacare, you had the gay marriage decision. And you know this term has been quieter, just people are focusing obviously on the Scalia's death and the replacement. But quietly, there's been a lot of things going on, both at the Supreme Court level, at the appellate level, where the courts are just going to new levels to redefine the Constitution, redefine statutes, serve as what we call a super legislature. And I want want to kind of bring this back to the basics. And again, I'm going to plug my book here. You know, I, I discussed this in full and stolen sovereignty, how this, uh, how the courts are transforming America and what to do to stop it. Amazon.com, you could pre-order. It's going to come out in July. But, you know, when, when our forefathers fought a revolution, I mean, Joe, look, they didn't think they were going to win the revolution. And once they did, they, they didn't think that they'd successfully install a government. Well, what do you replace King George with? But here's what they didn't think would happen. They didn't think we would have tyranny result from a legal profession with black robes deciding every political and societal question of our time. 
I, I think it's fair to say, you know, there were some that kind of warned about the encroachment of the judiciary like every other. But, you know, Madison was always worried about the legislature predominating. Um, others were concerned about a tyrant as the chief executive. But the harmless, nerdy little judges <laughs> with the black robes, I mean, that they would be the end all. Are, are you kidding me? Yeah. They, 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 uh, they didn't think that. I mean, am, no. am I wrong? Look, you, you went to law school. No, they didn't. They didn't think it. And they thought that they put the safeguards in place to prevent it should it come up. I mean, that was the whole point of the separation of powers. And I mean, we could go on a cliched conservative rant here like you did earlier this week, where we talk about what the separation of powers is, how the Constitution was formulated to ensure that and all of that. But the last fear that they had was that you would have... A court, a federal court system, the way that it is now, where they're deciding all, like you said, all of the seminal political and societal questions, they were more worried about the way that they were going to interpret the law, how it was actually going to function at this sort of mechanical level. They weren't worried about how it was going to operate at the political level because, I I mean, we've talked about this before. John Jay left the Supreme Court, he quit because he thought it was going to be a boring sort of just mechanical creature. And lo and behold, just a few years later, you have Marbury versus Madison, which, you know, changed the way that the court operated. And throughout history, progressives, you know, not just Democrats or liberals, but progressives have seen the court and utilized the court as a vehicle to sort of forward a progressive agenda. Exactly. The agenda that for which there were no elections. That's why the courts weren't elected, because they weren't supposed to decide political questions. That's why you have elections. I mean, that, that that's the underpinning of any democracy. So, I mean, there's basically a two-step process here. Number one, the courts were never supposed to be the final arbiter of every constitutional question, right? There is some debate even among the founders whether there was a provision for judicial review whether they did have a power to invalidate statutes to overrule stuff but two things number one you mentioned marbury versus madison even john marshall who was the pioneer kind of viewed as the judicial strongman he only said it would be used sometimes and it was only when the statutes were manifestly against the Constitution as it was originally adopted. And Marshall said that many times, and he even pretty much indicated that they wouldn't really have much judicial review power over state legislatures. And even over Congress, is very sparingly, manifestly against the Constitution, very rare. That wasn't certainly wasn't their main job. And even if they did, Joe, they're called opinions. The point was that, again, people think, oh, the court, the court ruled, the court, the court issued it, the court, well, what did the court say? Well, you have three branches of government, and they said the courts were the weakest and the legislature was the strongest. But how could that be if they have the final say over everything? What, what was really meant – and Madison said this many times – that you would have the three branches of government kind of brush up against each other. You, you, would, you would debate some issues, and n- neither of them are the supreme law of the land. As, as, as Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers, the Constitution is – it's just, well, you know, sometimes there's ambiguities. What does the Constitution say? You know, how do you apply it to this case? So everyone would have their say. The legislature would do their thing. The executive would do his thing. And the courts would – they were regarded as scholarly, that they were knowledgeable, and they would be respected. 
But, you know, ultimately, you know, they, they didn't necessarily have the final say, and it would go to the people. If the people felt that they were right, they would punish the legislatures if they didn't listen or the president. If not, the, the point is, if you have a, a tribunal that's the final say, there's no democracy. That's number one. That's the first tranche. But, Joe, it gets worse than that. There's one thing that you make yourself the final arbiter of the Constitution as it relates to fundamental rights, state powers, federal power, and anything around. Okay. But then at least you use the Constitution as it was originally conceived as your guidepost. And again, there's gray areas, there's disagreements, there's things that are unclear how to apply it, but then there's things that are they all sides admit are clear. For example, you, you can't tell me that a state law defining marriage as a marriage is unconstitutional because every state at the time both the original constitution was adopted and the 14th Amendment were adopted, they not only defined marriage as a marriage, they criminalized the actual homosexual behavior. You, you could agree or disagree as a matter of policy, but to say that that is manifestly unconstitutional, uh, well, no, I mean, it, it, it can't be. So, so th- this is the point. They have a living and breathing constitution, which is nothing more than the Democrat Party platform So now you have two steps. Number one, they have the final say. Number two, they use the Democrat Party platform and retroactively backfill it into the Constitution as not just an ever-evolving policy statement, but an ever-evolving enshrined fundamental rights that are completely taken out of the realm of the political debate. Right, that's the difference between doing something in the political realm or enshrining it through the courts and constitution. So what we have nowadays is we don't have democracy anymore. And I want to kind of use that introduction to get into specifics. I'm going to get very general, and then Joe, let's let's kind of unpack each case one by one. Here's the thirty thousand foot view based on some of the cases we've been focusing on at Conservative Review this term, uh, last couple of years in general. Okay, you ready? You have no right to work without forced donations to Democrat Party unions. You have no right to breathe without purchasing a private product, namely health care, health insurance. You have no religious conscience rights to do whatever you want with your own family farm, your own business, and not involuntarily serve something that's contrary to your religion. You have no right to carry a weapon, even though, well, it kind of says that in the Constitution. But you do have a right as a man to pee in a female bathroom. And foreign nationals have the right to come here, commit crimes, and stay here against the national will. Okay, so that what I just did is I just tied in in a very um, passionate, sharp, superficial sense the 30,000-foot view of what comes out of the these decisions. What's in the Constitution is not in it. What's not in it is in it. Statutes that Congress wrote a certain way the courts now rewrite. So, you know, Joe, I want, I want to get your thoughts on your natural law guy, your, your religious Catholic. You know, you had the Little Sisters of the Poor in the Zubik case uh, this past week with Paul Clement delivering the oral ar- arguments on, the, on behalf of the Little Sisters and the government on the defense side. And I, I was just shocked that constitutionally, there's no question, I'm not going to go over my whole piece, but... Conscience is the most sacred pro- private property. You have a not just any organization, but a religious Catholic organization, um, private organization that is forced to fund contraceptive abortifacients 
um, through health health insurance policy plans. So that you know, and and they are fined seven million dollars a year. So there's no question constitutionally that's unconstitutional, right? Because if it is, we have no country. The entire founding of the country, entire preamble of the Declaration, private property rights, religious liberty. That's there. But to begin with, the the case, for the most part, is not constitutional. It's about interpreting RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Act passed by Congress, sponsored by Chuck Schumer. You see how far we've we've come over the years, sponsored by Chuck Schumer. So RIFRA lays out a very clear path to dealing with religious liberty. And it says, as long as people could say, an organization, a person could say, I am substantially burdened, which $7 million a year is a pretty substantial burden – by this this mandate of the government again that that runs contrary to my religious beliefs so the government has to show that in order for this to go through that they have a substantial government interest in in passing this regulation and that this is the the least intrusive way of doing it now so you're telling me that funding people's Private birth control is is a is a fundamental government interest. I mean, Joe, tell me, I, I, aren't all the policy people complaining that we don't have a replacement rate enough, a high enough birth rate? I mean, if anything, you can say the government interest is. I mean, really, buy your own stinking thing. I mean, that that. So I saw from Sotomayor from these people. Well, anyone could say this is against my soul and against anything. Well, Quakers could say I don't want to pay taxes. But there's a difference between taxes for general income, which fund national security and and wars that they might be against, versus funding someone else's private birth control in your personal business arrangement and contract for compensation plans. What am I missing here? What's so hard? You're not missing anything in you. You. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. It's funny. You just. Right. But you just explained constitutional law. What what takes, you know, some people an entire semester to learn. And, and you summed it up in about three or four minutes there. And there's a lot to unpack. But I'll say this. I'll break it down. A little more simply, you talked about substantial burden. You talked about, um, which is a term of art, meaning that it, it it means something in the in the legal world, not just uh, sort of descriptively, but it means something specific. You 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 know, you talked about sort of um, other areas of law and sort of like conflict of law areas in terms of constitutional law. But let's make it this simple: when when you first start talking about constitutional law or just laws in general in a democracy or a republic, when you're in eighth grade, let's say you're in a class. They talk about it in terms of people owning a yard. My rights, I get to do whatever I want in my yard. And as long as I don't cross over into your yard or mess with your trees or whatever you have in your yard, that's fine. And you do the same in yours. And where where the law is, the law is sort of like the fence. It's the fence between us. It keeps me okay in my myself and my rights, and it keeps you okay in yourself. Now, if you start coming over into mine, that's where you're sort of breaking the law. Now, that's very simplistic, but it, it works in this, this situation here with the sisters who are practicing their religion, they help the poor, they help the needy, they don't believe in, I mean, you know, they, they, they live chaste lives and, and they don't believe in, in abortifacients, meaning drugs that can induce abortion. And so they're doing their thing, but they're not forcing anybody 
to you know they're not forcing anybody to not have birth control because they're not going into CVS and, are, and you know don't believe yeah, and 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 uh, stealing the the contraceptions <laughs> right and and look there was was there a time in this country where you know certain forms of birth control were not allowed yes there was but we're talking about you know today and here and so like you said not only are we forcing people to have a private product, health insurance, but we're also forcing the type of product it is. So it'd sort of be like, we're going to mandate that everyone has to buy soda or pop today and you have to buy Coke. I don't care that you like Pepsi. You have to buy Coke. And it's 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 kind of ridiculous because, again, we've, we're crossing over so many areas of constitutional law. We're sort of, you know, we're just railroading all of it to serve one agenda item in one agenda piece and we're blowing the rest of it out of the water. And it's, you know, and it's literally, you can't make this stuff up. It's against nuns. It's against people who all they want to do is help the poor and the needy do what they want to do. But if they can't do that, if they can't have their organization because they're an organization and have to buy it, they're going to be forced to stop helping the less fortunate because their conscience is, is, you know, their principle is so important to them. Like, they can't have one without the other. Talk about a go- fu- fundamental government interest there. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it works the other way, but, but that's, that's what you see here. So instead, it was very clear that there are four, the impervious blue wall on that, on that Supreme Court, four of them clearly don't, be- and again, it's a statute written by Congress, and they clearly don't like it. Okay, we get that. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, take off your robe and run for election in your home state. And you could, you know, pass a different Religious Freedom Act, which I would say would wind up actually being unconstitutional. But but th- but that's the point. They they rewrite statutes. So what I want the point I want to make, Joe, and I, I want to kind of go rapid fire here, you know, before we yeah. run out of time and go through some of these cases where once the court has decided that they're the the they have the power to rewrite the constitution and strike down statutes they've now had the power to rewrite statutes certainly we saw that very evident in the obamacare cases literally when it said the word state where you only get healthcare subsidies if the state set up healthcare exchanges they rewrote it to mean federal even though it was clear by the textual language and the intent behind it it was supposed to be a carrot and a stick for states that that yeah it was meant to be a state i mean that that is no question about it. They wrote, rewrote Obamacare as a tax. When it was, it, it, you know, it's a definition of a regulation. I don't want to get into this now. It'll take forever. It's two in the weeds, but we'll put in the show notes some EPA cases, some electricity regulations as well. I have two separate articles on that. FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, where they rewrote statutes. These were some of Scalia's final dissents. Literally, the last day of, of published uh, opinions before he, he uh, you know passed away, um, where he, he was like going to town on it. You are rewriting. That's not what Cong- Congress said. Manifestly the opposite. So now they are a super legislature where they have the final say over the con- to define the contours of, f- of fundamental liberties, the role of government. They have the final say over statutes. And now even when they're not overturning statutes, they're rewriting them to mean the opposite 
of what it meant. And, and, and now to close the loop on the little sister's case, the Zubik case, they're saying, hey, you know, come back to us with some arrangements to explain how the government could run, you know, some sort of health insurance scheme through a third party. So you're not paying it and a little different from the current one. Get out of here. That, 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 that's not what it said. You, you can't rewrite the law. And, you know, we're, we're finding this all over the place. We're finding I've written prolifically some uh, just this week, several articles on the lower courts, the Ninth Circuit, the Second Circuit, overturning citizenship laws, immigration laws, releasing criminal aliens into our country. So, so Joe, not only are we, you know, what the courts are doing is infringing upon the unalienable rights of property, of liberty, of conscience, all, all to sacrifice on the altar of politically correct protected class super rights the right to pee in a female bathroom which is coming to the federal court system in 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 north carolina now um where the entire aclu and legal profession believes you have a fundamental right to do that and you know that you have a right to do and that now they're cutting and pasting those rights for protected americans to foreign nationals so we can't even control through our elected representatives okay you're going to come in under these citizenship conditions, no, that's unconstitutional. Ninth Cir- Circus said, um, with one case with a, a drunkard alien, you know, we said that you know if you're a drunkard, that could be a moral problem that we could deport you. Now, they, they gave this whole screed about, well, who are you to look down on them? Well, th- th- that's a policy question, but we have the right to say. You know, if you're an illegal, you're going to be deported under any circumstances. So certainly under, you know, if, if, if you're a drunkard, we can deport you. We've done that our entire history. So you can't tell me that it suddenly becomes unconstitutional. Well, Joe, don't we have evolving standards of values? Well, OK, so then evolve on your political bills. But you can't backfill that into the Constitution. But, Joe, at the same time, we had the Montgomery case where the they threw out the Eighth Amendment, they, the whole understanding. All of a sudden, life in prison without parole for juveniles is uncon- it's cruel and unusual punishment. We, we, you might not like it as a matter of policy, but we've done that our whole history. You can't tell me that, that all our great political leaders and founders violated the Constitution until uh, you know Elena Kagan came along. <laughs> Uh, what, what am I missing here? You're not. And, and the other thing to remember here, too, is it's not just that we disagree with the court or the court disagrees with us or one one or the other on specific issues. We could take any of these issues and probably say, OK, the court should have reviewed this and should have ruled this to be unconstitutional. The case you just brought up about juvenile lifers, that's one that I think if you really pushed, you know, to the limit, you could say Yes, they're proper in making that constitutional determination. But unfortunately, the court doesn't stop there and hasn't stopped there. Over the last really 50 years especially, there's been a jurisprudence with the court that not only do these cases then apply to other cases that don't have the same facts or even circumstances surrounding them, but their willingness to apply certain rules and to expand other rules based on cases they've decided, which, again, without getting too much into the weeds, the court 
literally now views itself as this final arbiter and rewriter of the Constitution. They don't say it like that, but that's how they operate. <laughs> this super legislature. And that's the problem is that it's it's sort of like it's sort of like when you're raising kids. One of the reasons that you don't allow kids to do certain things isn't just because it's necessarily a bad thing right then and there or harmful to them, but once they get accustomed to doing something, it becomes not only second nature, but you you can't ever put that back in the box. It's you know the old saying: you let the genie out, you can't put it back in the yep. bottle. And that's what we've got here: is a court. The courts are irremediably broken. Yes. They're irrevocably broken, and that's that's why I want to and I want to focus on this in some of our future podcasts, Joe, because the reason is it's not just about oh the fifth vote, Garland. You confirm him. You don't confirm. Even if we don't confirm him, they still have a four and a half to five majority that literally believes in this backward stuff where we've been talking about and more than a majority on the lower courts and and many of those cases don't get back up to the court to to, to the Supreme Court. So just just to summarize, I mean, we've had this week on the same week where there's no religious liberty in the minds of at least four justices, you had the union dues case. So the California law forcing every state employee to donate to Let's face it, nothing more than a circuitous money laundering operation for the Democrat Party. The unions openly spend the money to elect Democrats. I mean, Joe, Joe imagine if I would say, um, you know, let's take Texas. You know, Greg Abbott likes us a lot. You know, he likes Mark Levin, conservative state. We say, hey, you know what, Greg, Governor, can you, uh, you know, push in the legislature there a law saying that every Texas state employee has to donate 5% to conservative review? <laughs> that's, that's what you're saying. You're literally and, and we don't engage in overt you know, election. We don't do electioneering where, you know, we're just intellectual stuff. You don't do electioneering. The, the unions do electioneering that they're more than almost any sphere of, of, of politics. And so, so, Joe, again, back to the point, the courts were never really meant to strike down laws with regularity, certainly state laws. But. If you are going to strike down state marriage laws that were in place since the time of of, of our founding, redefine the, the building block of civilization, if you're gonna say that's suddenly unconstitutional, you're gonna you're gonna strike down state laws on juvenile sentencing, juvenile lifers, like in Louisiana, that case th- this past term. That you know, if you're gonna do that, by golly. Aren't you then required to strike down state laws that infringe upon things that are manifestly against the Constitution, forcing people to violate the religious conscience with their private property, forcing people to give union dues to a Democrat campaign operation? I mean, it makes no sense here. But but that's what it is. It's one directional. It builds on itself. The legal profession is already built on 50 years of doing this. And... You know, we don't really have much of a say anymore. So, I mean, Joe, I'll, I'll give you the last word. What I want to know is, is it really worth fighting Garland? <laughs> On the one hand, you say after everything we're saying, like, yeah, but do we, don't we need more systemic reforms than just blocking individual nominees? We do, but it starts with Garland. We talked about this on a podcast a couple weeks ago. And starting in 87 with Bork, you had a, a another monumental shift in the way that the court operates, in the way that sort of Congress and the executive branch are positioned towards the Supreme Court. So 
Garland as an individual judge and his jurisprudence aside, the fight is very important. The fight is the first step, I believe, in doing that larger fundamental sort of let's call it an untransformation to get it back to where the court needs to be. They need to be able to say it can no longer be a political entity. And while you make this a political fight, it sort of seems hypocritical, but, but we're going to fight this on political grounds because it's a political beast. And once you recognize that and say, okay, let's not make it a political beast, then they can start confirming people based solely on jurisprudence and on qualifications. But until that time, out of principle, they have to fight this, you know, especially being in the lame duck portion of this presidency. It just has to be that way. Exactly. And, it's, and it, was, it was the Democrats who made this bad. It's their turn to lie in it. Exactly. You made a super legislature. Well, if the plain legislature is elected, well, super legislature, we got to, you know, we, we got to wait till elections. Look, we're at a time here, Joe, but I want to continue this, you know, for, for the audience Again, this is stuff you're not going to hear elsewhere. Who knows what Donald Trump's going to do, what what sort of soap opera is going to come out this next week. But again, watch for the courts. Be, be, just right under our noses, they are redefining what it, the entire relationship between an individual and the state, the individual and the federal government, the role of the courts, fundamental rights, our future sovereignty, our society, and even our security now um, with the stuff the courts are doing, let, letting go of these security risks. So, you know, look for more of our write-ups. We're going we're gonna to link to many of these cases if you want to drill down into some of the specifics, the real nerds out there for you. But until next week, when we come back and delve into this more, thanks for listening. This is The Conservative Conscience. <laughs>